We're entering a new phase in the pandemic. Summertime. I know that sounds silly, but I do think it complicates things. The past weekend was Memorial Day weekend. Any other year, that means a long, glorious three days in the sun, barbecuing, at the beach, a marquee sports weekend. It also marks for many the beginning of the summer. Beginnings and endings all seem bittersweet indoors right now, if I'm being honest with you. Regular reminders of how much less we have to focus on. I did, however, find myself fixated on two videos that went viral this weekend, in large part because I think they represented two alarmingly different attitudes towards the current crisis we're all living through. And somewhere where capacity was not light whatsoever was the Lake of the Ozarks over the weekend for the Memorial Day holiday. In the first video, crowds of mostly young people are seen languishing in the water in close proximity. I nearly jumped off the couch when I saw it. What looked like a spring break music video, not the cautious social distancing we're all supposed to be practicing right now. I wonder for a moment if this was one of those videos that we'd later discover was recorded last year or something. And then there was this other, very different circumstance. The video was released this weekend from a grocery store in Staten Island. A crowd of people shouting one unmasked person out of the building. They're clearly incensed that this one person would act without consideration for all of the other shoppers. Same virus, same country, totally different mentalities. And for the most part, the rest of us are all somewhere in between, sitting around trying to figure out how to move forward. On the one hand, we have experts in the government saying that the full scope of our daily lives may not return to normal for many months. And in the same breath, we have politicians talking about reopening, saying life can start returning to normal. Who are we supposed to listen to? How are we making sense of any of this? I mean, on a basic human progress level, it's a bummer because we don't seem to remember the past well enough to prepare for the future. From Neon Home Media, this is Telescope. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. And Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the foreseeable future, we're going to bring you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this pandemic. Joel Stein is a journalist living in Los Angeles. I have no idea what I do. Most of it involves journalism or sitcom writing or cooking with my family. He's being modest here. Joel's written for Time Magazine, Bloomberg, The New Yorker. And these days, like many others, he's doing it mostly from home. And he's processing the same mix of information that the rest of us are. I wanted to talk to him about it because, well, He's kind of an expert on experts. Before the pandemic, he'd written a book that seems oddly prescient now. It's called In Defense of Elitism. And in it, Joel argues for trusting intellectuals, experts, to know what's best. There's this ever-present tension in American intellectual life between people who are experts and people who make decisions on our behalf. Mostly because they're not always the same people. The genesis of Joel's research wasn't, of course, informed by our current crisis, but rather a major political event which also changed lives for millions of people. 
the 2016 election. I remember, like many of us, where I was the day after the election. I'd caught a flight to Chicago from Los Angeles for a conference, an overnight. Dropped my bags off at the hotel and went for a walk downtown, past the massive Trump Hotel along the Chicago River. Realizing that name and all the monuments to it would be seen in a whole new light right now. I ducked into this sort of indoor mall and had a breakfast at a diner. Next to me, a group of men were talking politics, just a little too loudly. A man came up and screamed in their face. The room went silent. He chastised them for criticizing the new president. This isn't your country anymore, he said. Expletive, expletive, expletive. This man was, don't get me wrong, not a shining example of humanity. But for me, that was the moment where I went from thinking the social fabric might be fraying to knowing for sure that the threads that once held us together weren't as tightly woven as I once thought. And that's what Joel went in search of for his book, the part of the country that saw the 2016 election as a reclamation of their country the people who were more inclined towards a charismatic outsider as president, rather than a lifelong public intellectual and bureaucrat, rather than an expert. Joel traveled to Roberts County in Texas, the county in America with the highest percentage of Trump voters, 95%. It was about kind of how the gut has taken over, over expertise. A lot of it had to do with politics and populism. People don't seem to trust the media. They don't trust politicians. They barely trust their doctors. But I think at this point in the crisis with over 100,000 people dead and no clear end in sight, it's also safe to say that Trump's anti-intellectual stance has sometimes made things difficult for him. I mean, I'll be honest, I was taken aback. And we've talked about this on the show when Trump claimed that sneaking light inside the lungs of COVID-infected people would be a cure for the virus. Did our president just suggest that sunlight is the best disinfectant? Anyway, the point is that even in the same press conference, American people will receive conflicting information from elected officials who are in office because they do not present as elitists and experts like the CDC director, Anthony Fauci, who is practically an archetype of the civil servant scientist. This has Joel spinning his wheels too particularly on this Memorial Day weekend. Americans, after months indoors, are dangling over the precipice of summertime, and they are getting antsy. It seems like there's a little bit of a tipping point where people just got tired of quarantining, which, which is totally understandable, and it's a, it's a decision, and I'm not judging people for what they do. A decision that, at least in the case of the partiers at the lake in Missouri, seems to be rooted somewhere between apathy and a disregard of the threat that COVID still possesses. But I'm interested in the ways that they justify it and kind of all claim to have some kind of knowledge of disease prevention and epidemiology that are just wrong. Same appears to be true for the protesters on the lawns of their state capitals, demanding that the country reopen. People who feel, and I can't think of a better way to say this, entitled to living their normal lives. For the majority of Americans, this concerns basic human activity. 
going to the grocery store or going to work. And for the working poor, the pandemic is a much bigger deal. Joel says the crisis is highlighting a clear divide in our country between the servers and the people who are being served. The real difference isn't between the 1% and the 99%. I'm finding the difference is between the bottom 40% and the top 60%. Like the people who have to go to work at a meat processing plant or have to go to work cleaning a hospital, those, those people are getting sick. Our experience of life under COVID is profoundly different if you have to go to work in areas where you're at a high risk for exposure. And that's like half of us. For so many, the crisis cuts in a much deeper way. But what about that 1% that's rich enough to still be getting served? The richest of the rich. Turns out they'll go to some extreme ends to maintain how they live right now. And that means, for some, changing where they live. Only 5% of people in New York City have left New York City. But the, the, my old building in New York, London Terrace, which is, you know, the, not an extraordinarily expensive building, but it, you know, it's a nice building in Chelsea. I was talking to the doorman there who had had COVID. And he was telling me that um, there's only 30% of the people left in the building. Everyone either went to, you know, a parent's house or rented a house in Hudson or up in Maine. Like every Zoom call I'm in is somebody who used to be in Brooklyn is now in a place called like Brooklyn, Maine, literally. Or, you know, some lake house on the border of Canada up in Vermont. A lot of rich people seem to be able to get a place somewhere else. But I'm not just talking about escaping to the country and buying vacation homes. The super rich are also trying to keep up with their daily lives from before the pandemic. For some, that means they go to great lengths to stay fit. Oh, and I do know a personal trainer guy who I worked with on a story I talked to. And he's been doing all this stuff on Zoom, but he had some clients ask him to get tested and then come over to their house. And it was like, yeah, my doctor will give you a test and then you can come over and be my personal trainer. And it's not just the people inside these big houses who are keeping to their routines. There was someone I was talking to whose dog gets acupuncture because the dog hurt their back. So the acupuncturist came and they did it outside and then he took wipes and wiped like Clorox disinfecting wipes and wiped down his dog the best he could before he came inside. <laughs> Shaking my head at this one. I'm not sure if I threw out my back, if I'd be comfortable getting acupuncture right now, let alone for my dog. All of this might seem innocuous if it weren't so unclear on what's the right thing to do right now. I don't want to judge people for having their lives be a certain way, but it's also hard not to think about the daily risk that the people who provide these services, essential or not, have to be going through right now. A bunch of people I know are having their cleaning people come to their house or their nannies who are like full-time only to them. And then other other people getting Botox, other people getting their hair done, other other people... I mean, there's a lot of people question, like, watching TV and saying, hey, that person clearly you know, is having some help with her makeup. I know we went on a little bit of an aside there, but there's a larger point here. The protesters on the Capitol, the clients of dog acupuncturists, they want the same thing. The creature comforts we all enjoyed way back in the year of our Lord, 2019. These protests, I'm not following them closely enough to say this, but it seems to me... The people at the protest don't seem to be 
waitresses and people who clean houses desperate to get back to work. They seem to be people who want to go to gyms and get their hair cut. They're people who want to be served and they're angry about not being served. And now when I watch TV and movies and I see people like go to a hotel or a restaurant, I'm just very cognizant about how many people in the background are serving them. It's weird how much we miss that and how much we have become entitled to that. Joel has a theory in his book that when the crisis hits, people listen to experts, AKA the elites. And that theory, he says, held up during the crisis. Well, at least at the beginning. I kind of had this theory in the book, which was a shaky theory, that when things get dangerous, populism kind of wanes and people accept expertise more. So my theory was that like during the Great Depression, suddenly a bunch of economists from Harvard were in the president's cabinet and populism wasn't so big. For the most part, people, when they get cancer, stop looking at WebMD, well, they look at WebMD, but they start to look at the diplomas on their doctor's wall a lot more carefully. And that, that people really respect expertise in a crisis. And that was kind of proving true for the first, I'd say almost two months of the virus, right? Like people were really interested in Anthony Fauci all of a sudden. And people on Twitter were following epidemiologists. And I felt like it was a really strong moment for expertise in science. And people were, were desperate and they were listening. This global virus thing really freaked us all out at first. So we followed the rules, listened to the people who knew what was up. But after a while, the trust began to wane. The experts lost their foothold. And Joel says the message around the shutdown became muddled. People began looking for excuses to go outside and play. People stopped being interested in what experts had to say. And they really focused on that particular aspect. And they didn't they weren't really willing to listen to or explore complexity, right? It was either like, do we open or not open? It wasn't like open for whom, open which parts, open when, you know, open where. Like there's so many complicated questions when you do risk analysis and people weren't particularly interested in that. And they just kind of said, okay, if I, if I don't have symptoms in two weeks, I'm hanging out with people. And it, it, that kind of bummed me out. It bums me out too. I saw that video of the partiers over the weekend, and my first thought was, what if the virus keeps coming back? Will the rest of us be spending a year of our life mostly indoors because of people who can't deal with doing it for a few months? It's a classic tragedy of the commons situation. I felt helpless. And while personally, I do trust public experts and scientists who are encouraging a furtherance of stay-at-home orders— and our concern that we're opening up the country too quickly, I do think, in a way, we are all similar. This whole thing makes us all feel helpless. We're looking to control some part of our lives right now. It's interesting that, like, I know people who know people who have died, but and are still behaving in what I consider a somewhat risky way, and they're their ability to justify is really high. Like, well, they had gone to this conference right before that they shouldn't have gone to, or they, they're they older, or they're, whatever their reasoning is, they have some reason to justify why it would happen to someone besides that. But we are social beings. There's no way around that. So we're going to be social, whether it kills us or not. And it often does. So in short, humans are going to be humans. We crave the ability to gather in groups, to be outside and in the world, even if it's not safe yet. 
I feel like what annoys me about being in a hyper-capitalist system is that the only thing you can talk about is money. And you can say, like, we need to open up because the economy needs it. And you can't say, because I'm lonely. You can't say, because, because we're, social, we're social animals and we want to see each other. You can't talk about the other reasons that aren't economic. People suck at risk analysis. My friend Amanda Ripley wrote a book about this. And that's why terrorism is so effective, right? Because you, you just do something big and loud and noisy and people get really scared. But they're not scared of like the virus because it's kind of invisible. And a lot of people, for some reasons, a lot of people don't know people who have the virus, at least in, in my circle, which is weird because I know a bunch. And that's part of the problem. There's no big, loud, scary event to prove the risk of the virus. It's out there everywhere, but also sometimes it can feel like a figment of our public imagination. You can't see it. I'm also curious about the fact that like gravity always wins. You know, at first there were a lot of people who thought this was a hoax, Trump included, right? That the, the virus was a hoax. And at some point that became, I think, an untenable position. But then I don't know what the number is. When enough people die or, or, or the enough people get the disease and it's spread out or it's been around long enough that people stop arguing about wearing masks or I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I do think that in these extreme situations, expertise should get more respect, but I'm not entirely sure. As things start opening up, many people are being more social and are justifying it, even if experts say it's not actually safe to see your friends yet. Some of us gravitate towards people who tell us it's okay to go out. Others just do it anyway. Joel says that overall, we're kind of detached from the actual impacts of the virus. It's different than something like 9-11, something people seem to feel more. The weeping and the, and the national mourning over 9-11 was, it was existential. Like people felt personally attacked and in fear in a different way than they do now. 9-11 caused us as a nation to mourn together. Joel remembers the somber tone of late night talk shows back then. It lasted for weeks, maybe months. People knew when to grieve, right then. But this virus isn't going away anytime soon, so people are trying to move on, even though this national trauma is still happening. But like during the virus, like you can put up your comedy special on Netflix that you shot before this thing that's totally inappropriate. You can, no one is mad about joking about this. It's weird. If anything, joking is encouraged. The positive spin is that it's an escape. When we first went into lockdown, it felt like we were all in this together and TikTok was a national solve helping us cope, but also sort of helping us hover in a state of denial. This will be the month. This will all end soon. Life will get back to normal. It was novel back then, almost more interesting than troubling. We could all observe the world taking a short break, as long as we believed we would get back to normal soon, together. But hearing Joel talk about his reporting made me realize we aren't going through this together at all. Our different circumstances, jobs, living situations, mayors, all these factors change how we experience this pandemic.
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. And one more thing. Every week, we hear dozens of stories about people who are trying to make sense of this crisis. We've asked you to record voice memos of your lives in isolation. And at the end of every episode, we're going to share them here with you. Jenny in Chicago sent us a clip of her playing a video game. Ready? Go! She's in her living room using a Nintendo Ring Fit to break up balls of energy flying around the screen. Jenny has created other routines recently, like walking more and cooking at home, but she's excited to continue once things are not on lockdown. Thanks, Jenny, for sharing your story. Pretty good. We got a B plus. You can send your recordings to us at pitches at neonhum.com. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Today's episode was produced by Haley Faker. It was edited by Vikram Patel. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear on this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. We've got a Facebook page now. Just search for Telescope. We want to stay connected with you during this unprecedented time in our history, so please don't be shy. Share your stories with us. Our DMs are open. If you have a story of life in isolation because of the coronavirus that you want to share with us, email us at pitches at neonhome.com. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. I hope you have a restful and safe weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Hold up. 